Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. What is love and why does it matter? Well, that's one of the topics I'm going to be talking about with my good friend, John Stone Street, today on the Impact 360 Institute podcast and talking about a chapter that he wrote and contributed to our new volume, No Be Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era, edited by John Basie and other contributors. But before I get to that conversation, um, a little bit about John, who's a friend of Impact 360. We've known each other for a long time now. He serves as the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He is a sought-after author and speaker on areas of faith and culture, theology, worldview, education, and apologetics. He's also the daily voice of Breakpoint, and he is the voice of The Point as well, which is a daily one-minute feature on worldview, apologetics, and cultural issues. And he's the co-author of five books, A Practical Guide to Culture, A Student's Guide to Culture, Restoring All Things, Same-Sex Marriage, and Making Sense of Your World, A Biblical Worldview. And he and his wife, Sarah, have four children and live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. But most of all, he is doing amazing work for the kingdom and engaging and integrating worldview and culture, and that's why I'm so glad to get to have this conversation with John Stone Street today. So, John, thanks for stopping by the podcast today. You bet. Always good to talk to you and uh, love Impact and everything that you guys are doing, uh, especially in the lives of the next generation. Well, thanks so much, and it's always a blast to have you here on campus, getting to work with our students some as well, and helping them think rightly about culture. But really excited to have a conversation around, you know, as we think about discipling the next generation, this post-Christian culture that we're in, where, say, 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview, uh, one of the topics that may not come up as frequently as people might think, or at least to emphasize, is this topic of love, and we're going to get into that, but maybe talk a little bit about kind of why you care about working with students in the next generation. Why, why is that such a big deal that Christians and the church especially gets this right, investing in the next generation? Well, you know, as one historian put it, you know, from barbarism to civilization takes a century, from civilization to barbarism takes only a day. Um, you know, it's the idea of, as our friend Jeff Myers puts it, of the baton pass, you know, and you can be winning the race and drop the baton and, you know, the baton doesn't get past to the next runner and, you know, and that's it. And, you know, that's the way scripture communicates the gospel is that there's this multi-generational fathers to their children and to their children's children, and that it's a part of all of life. And, you know, this is the way scripture describes faith and describes obedience. And, and also, you know, because, Look, we believe there's an actual reality that's out there and that God has, you know, created it. How cruel would it be to not prepare the next generation for that reality or to allow them to believe lies? I mean, that's just that's just really, you know, to call it setting them up for failure is an understatement. That's really kind of setting them up for pain and setting them up for disappointment and setting them up at times for ruin. And, and that's what culture can do. You know, we have to catechize the next generation because the culture, that's what culture does. Culture catechizes us. It sells us values. It sells us behaviors. It sells us habits. Sometimes it does it without ever making a single argument. Hmm. And, you know, the question is, is who's catechizing the next generation? If we're not actively doing it, then it's definitely being done. <laughs> it's just going to be done by somebody else. 
Absolutely. And, and I wholeheartedly agree. And so in light of that, I love where you start in your chapter where you talk about how the greatest commandment, you know, relates to our fundamental identity as an image bearer. Talk about why you start there and make that just connection explicit to understand kind of why that's the important starting point when we start to think about love. Well, it is interesting, you know, when Jesus summed up all the commands, and we know how many there are in the Old Testament, uh, there's a lot, and Jesus summed it up as loving God and loving others. And, you know, that's notable, I think, for two reasons. Number one is that one way that thinkers of Christian worldview have described the, the sort of framework that the Scripture gives us about life in the world is relationships, properly ordered relationships. I often talk about it as the upward, inward, outward, downward relationship. Uh, and you can see that right off the bat in Genesis chapter 1. You can see how those relationships are impacted in the fall in Genesis 3 and, and, and beyond. And then you can go through descriptions of what Christ accomplished in the Gospels, especially in the writings of, of Paul, and see you know how all of those relationships are affected. So we know we're in a relationship with God. And, uh, you know, we read in Genesis 2 that God, you know, comes and actually walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. There's an interior relationship. There's a knowledge of self that's, um, that's different than the animals. We exist. We wonder why we exist. Uh, scripture talks about Adam and Eve being naked and not ashamed before the fall, and then after the fall being naked and ashamed. You know, so there's this inner sense of awareness. There's certainly the outer relationships with other human beings. And then there's the downward relationship with the created order that, you know, we're not just part of the created order. We were given a authoritative role, a, a caretaking position. Uh, we're stewards of the created order. And, you know, in Genesis 3, the, the relationship with God is separated. The interior relationship is fragmented. Adam and Eve start blaming each other. That, you know, that escalates quickly in Genesis 4 with, you know, Cain killing Abel. And, you know, you go on to Babel and everything else. And then, you, you know, you also have this filling and subduing role that is now inflicted with pain and toil. And, and in, in other words, these relationships aren't just things we do. They're actually baked into who we are as image bearers. They're actually baked into the nature of reality. So it's interesting, you know, as God calls Israel, sets them apart, and all these rules, all these laws, this is how you're supposed to be different than the other nations. And then, of course, you had people like the Pharisees and Sadducees trying to figure out the implications of that in every single little setting, and they make it all about the rules. And so what Jesus does is when he's asked about the commandments, he sums it all up. Look, it's love. It's basically properly relating to each other. And how I relate to God and how I relate to you are going to be fundamentally different in the same way how I relate to my wife and how I'm going to relate to my daughter because of the identity of the parties that we're dealing with. And so, you know, God in Christ just sums this up, you know, to fulfill all the commandment is to love God, to fulfill them is to love our neighbor. And it's just interesting that that's where the greatest commandment begins. Believing is not enough in the sense of just assenting to what is true. Belief has to be actually lived out. It actually has to be applied. And that's, that's the word love, um, obeying. You know, we, we, you, you and I both have kids. We've all had those experiences when our kids obey, but they don't mean it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you might say they obey grumpily. I don't know. Maybe your kids don't have that problem. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like I, I'll do it, but I don't want to. You and I know that's not enough. That's not – we don't want kids 
to be outwardly compliant and inwardly rebellious. And so love covers that too, doesn't it? It covers the head and the heart. It puts it all together. And so St. Augustine, as he was, uh, you know, one of the great theologians in the history of uh, the human race, the history of the church, he summed up so much about what it means to know, trust, obey God and, and loving. And so he t- talked about loving the right things and loving the right things in the right order, the rightly ordered loves. And, and these things are critical to living out who God has made us to be as his image bearers and doing it together with other image bearers. Yeah, and that's so important because bringing that true narrative and that foundation, because it seems like so much in our culture right now for many people is just simply in midair, not anchored to anything. It doesn't flow. It doesn't have a telos, doesn't have an end point, doesn't have a trajectory. It's just kind of there. And people are trying to attach it to stuff, which we'll talk about more in a minute about what they're trying to attach it to. But talk about why it's so important, you know, as we think about where we're at and how crucial it is for us to define words um, well and truly and wrestle with that. Because, um, yeah, talk about why that matters, because people use words a lot of different ways these days. Well, and that's the thing is uh, one of the things that Scripture teaches us is that, you know, we are to, lo- you know, to, to serve God, to love Him well in this moment that He's placed us. I'm, I've been struck by this part of Paul's speech to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens for years now, where he says, you know, the God who created all this determines the exact times we live and the boundaries of our dwelling place. Now, it's always important to be careful how we use words, because words aren't just random symbols, as some philosophers would want you to say. They actually refer to reality. In fact, in a biblical worldview, it's Christ's words that are the building blocks of reality itself. In other words, the world is made of words in very real sense, not our words, but God's words. But we live in a time that complicates all this even more, which is, you know, what people will call the age of information. And all that means is, is the, you know, the dominant currency, the most important resource in our day is information. More, you know, the students that we work with will encounter more information today than a student in the 1200s uh, or 1300s would have seen their entire life. You know, and you add the internet to that and the not only that the information is there, not just that we live after so much scientific discovery and innovation and invention and technology, but that the technology has basically made all that stuff immediately accessible always, you know, through our little glowing devices. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. And a feature of this context of information is ideas, right? So ideas get smuggled in this sort of culture. It's often attributed to Lewis, where he said that, you know, the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones that are argued, but the ones that are assumed, the ones that kind of are just kind of taken for granted. And that happens so much through definition. Years ago, I was on a plane and this lady uh, beside me asked what I did. And I told her I worked for a Christian organization. And and she said, uh, well, I'm an atheist, prove me wrong. And so that started this (laughs) three hour conversation we were in. And it was a lot of fun. But Right off the bat, she said, you know, how can you believe in God? And I've been taught the wisdom of defining words. And so, you know, which is a a funny thing because, you know, she asked me why I believe in God. I went to seminary. I paid so much money to know the answer to that question, right? Why I believe in God. And, but I said, what do you mean by God? And she went on to describe essentially a Zeus, you know, the grumpy, 
angry, lightning bolt sort of God. And I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't defend without asking that question, because that's not the God I believe in. So here you have a, a case, and I know we've all had this experience where we're using the same vocabulary, but not the same dictionary. Mm. Now, when I teach on this, um, especially to parents and grandparents, I'll highlight four or five or six words that I think are particularly crucial today uh, in terms of brainwashing a generation through assumed definitions. And at the very top of that list, other than God and you know, right up there with truth, is the word love. Because if you think about it, almost every time the word love is used in our cultural context, it's used in either a sentimental sense or a sexual sense. And not even the sexual sense, like eros, one of the words that C.S. Lewis wrestles with for love in his book, The Four Loves. It's, it's almost like a pornographic sexuality, not a passion or you know, the sort of rightly ordered uh, eros that, that God created us with. Uh, within the context of, you know, an ordered relationship and the other loves. So in in other words, think about this for the younger generation. How are they going to fulfill the great commandment if every single time in their lives they've heard the word love used? It's been wrongly defined. Hmm. It's impossible to love God with our heart, soul, and mind if we think love is sentimentality. But how many kids do? How many kids, you know, think that, uh, that, that love is kind of a sentimental feeling. And if they don't have that sort of feeling, you know, then they don't really love God and maybe they don't really have faith and, you know, maybe it's not for them or, you know, and, and then you, gosh, you bring in kind of the sexualization of so much love and then it just becomes weird. I, I, this is crucial. We got to define our terms carefully. If we're going to, I mean, what is discipleship if it's not helping somebody obey the greatest commandment, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the definition of discipleship, right? And, but if we don't know what love is, there's no way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And so unpacking that a little bit more, I mean, just, just to put it as clearly as possible for everyone kind of to kind of on track with this, what happens if we just reduce love to feelings, whether that's God or our neighbor? Like, play that out a little bit, kind of what's at stake there? Well, I mean, look, feelings are an important part of us, but good heavens, feelings are fickle, right? How many, how many times do your feelings change throughout the day? And, and not only that, Scripture is really clear. We love Him because He first loved us. So if we reduce love down to feelings, we're not only reducing whether we love God based on whether we have feelings. And look, you and I both know, even as Jobs as you know, quote-unquote, defenders of the faith in some sort of public sense, you don't always feel it. You don't always feel like it. You don't always feel confident in the argument you just gave. You don't always feel confident in the reasons that you have studied. But it's even more than that, right? Because if we love him because he first loved us, and if love's nothing but feelings, not only are we assuming that we only love God if we feel like it, but we're assuming that he only loves us if he has good feelings about us. And so in our disobedience, in our addictions, in our sin— then we lose a sort of concept of, uh, you know, his unconditional love and care for us and a love that's rooted in truth and rooted in stability, as opposed to the same fickle feelings that we're basing our own understanding of love on. It's, it's absolutely crucial to define this well. And it starts with what we mean by God's love for us. Mm. We're only going to get right our love for him if we get right what, what it means that he loves us. 
Yeah, and, and I think what's really important for all of us who work with students and the next generation, currently Gen Z, and then eventually what, Gen Alpha coming after them, and whoever's next, there's always a next generation coming, is, but this particular generation, they grow up with a default, you know, with their dictionary, if you will, love defined as sentimentality or sexual um, nature, romantic type love definitions, that's their default. So you could preach the best sermon in the world, and if you're using the word love and they're encoding it with those things without it being explained, then we we have to define that for them. So what I'd love for right. you to do, <laughs> pun intended, is to um, take a second and contrast that with kind of maybe C.S. Lewis's kind of understanding of, of love and the different definitions there, and, and also what Augustine was getting at when he, when he talked about we are what we love, and kind of how, how actually a full-orbed understanding of love would look there. Oh, man, that is a, uh, a loaded question. There's a whole lot to that. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, anyway, let's, let, let's jump in. I mean, sentimentality itself is a feelings base. And you talked, uh, I think, about it well when you talked about this generation. And your description of Gen Z is really, really important because it's so important to, to get this right and what we mean by love and that sentimentality and feeling isn't it. But another thing that's probably worth being said is that we live in a cultural moment in which kids are not only told to reduce love down to a feeling, but that feeling itself is what determines reality. In other words, Feeling is more important. Um, you talk about the culture-wide identity crisis. There's not a single medical condition that we have in which, you know, physical reality doesn't match the mind or the impulse in which we would try to change the body, right? We, we didn't do that with an eating disorder. We don't do that with trans ableism, somebody who kind of feels like they should have a disability and they don't. We would try to align the mind with the body. But now when it comes to questions about gender, questions about sexuality, we realign reality to go along with their feelings. And, uh, you know, the, the ground that we're dealing with so much is um, kind of based in that. Now, what Lewis talked about was kind of four kinds of love. And I often say, you know, Lewis said, for every new book, read three old ones. And I'm like, for every new one, read three Lewis books. And the four <laughs> loves is as important as it gets. Because he talks about, you know, empathy as one form of love, storge. And this is not just, um, you know, kind of, you know, feeling sorry for someone, but the ability to care about someone enough to put yourself in their perspective and to take seriously the feeling of someone else. Uh, the, the perspective of someone else. And then there's friendship. Uh, you know, the Bible talks so much about friendship, philia, and this is like sibling love. This is, uh, you know, in, in ancient times and classical literature, uh, this was the strongest of all loves, friendship, because it exceeded everything else. Now, there is also romantic love, eros, but that's very different than the porneo, the, the disordered, you know, just sensuality that defines so much of what we call love. Eros is having to do with kind of the, the physicality of um, sexuality and taking seriously not just physical desire, but that you're dealing with an actual other image bearer in that and that it's connected to the ordering of the universe. So eros, for example, in the biblical sense is impossible in same-sex sexual unions. It's impossible with a sexually disordered union. It has to be within the context of God's design for human relationships. And then agape, which of course is 
the love that really is defined by God's love for us. This is sacrificial love, love you don't deserve, love that God showed to us while we were his enemies. And, and, and you, you kind of look through the depth of what this teaches us about who we are and about who other people are. You think about the dignity that it recognizes in others, these four loves. And then you compare that with kind of the sentimentality, pornographic stuff that we call love in our culture. We're not even in the ballpark. It's not strong enough upon which to build families. It's not strong enough to drive us to sacrifice and to live for the good of another. It's inherently self-oriented sentimentality and the sort of disordered pornographic sexuality. Um, it ignores the created design of the universe, and the way that we're supposed to find our orientation from God and how we live together. I mean, those are two shriveled up small concepts, which is one of the brilliant things often about Christianity. And you and I talk about this before, but when you talk about making the case for Christianity in this cultural moment, sometimes we feel like we've got to defend against all the critiques, and we often do. But we also have a much better picture. We have a much better case to make. You know, the biblical vision of love is beautiful and it's bigger and it's richer and it's deeper and it's more stable than these other shriveled up concepts. And, you know, that's the positive side of what I think cultural apologetics can look like, you know, in a culture that offers nothing but shriveled up human relationships to offer something bigger and better. I think is is something we need to figure out how to do. Now, you also talked about this idea of rightly ordered loves. This is another critical idea, and this time not from Lewis, but from St. Augustine. Although Lewis obviously talked about it as well as anybody who cared about what Augustine contributed. You know, it's interesting that the greatest commandment comes in an order. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Um you can argue there whether that's one commandment or two commandments, but really there's an ordering to it. You love God first, and then you love your neighbor. You can see what happens when this goes awry. So, for example, I love my kids. I love it when my kids are really happy. You probably have had those moments where your kids find something that they love, and they get passionate about it, and something gets you know lit up in their minds. And they're just you know, you you want to create space for them to be happy as much as possible. But you also want your kids to be holy. You want them to do the right thing. You don't want them to make stupid decisions and heap consequences on their head. Now, and the question is, have, have you ever met someone whose parents love their happiness more than their holiness? And have you ever flown beside that kid on an airplane? <laughs> you know how miserable their lives can be. In other words, a holiness has to be ordered above happiness. In the same way, loving God has to be ordered above loving neighbor. If you try to love a neighbor without the framing of loving God and his law and the way he created the world, then you're going to cut corners and you end up enabling someone in their brokenness and sin, not loving them. So if you love neighbor first and then try to love God, you love neither. The only way to properly obey these commandments is to do it in the right order. And, and that's what Augustine was talking about, is that not only do we have to love the right things, we have to love the right things in the right order. And, and what if this is discipleship? It's not just believing the right things, it's loving the right things. So, for example, we can teach kids apologetics so that they love you know, being able to answer a really tough question. But that has to come behind loving their neighbor, which is behind loving God and loving truth. 
Otherwise, they're going to just love being a jerk, you know, and smacking people over the head with their lawyer-like ability to be really clever. That's, that's actually not obedience to Christ. And so making sure these things are all in the right order, you know, uh, I think are, it, that's, that's absolutely crucial. Yeah, for sure. And that's such a helpful understanding and very well done on trying to summarize Lewis's four loves and Augustine <laughs> in a very short amount of time. That's a big Excellent. question. Yeah. Yeah. But but I was just thinking, I was like, you know, if, if we took this conversation that we're having right now and we put it in the typical high school classroom, whether even that's in a public school or honestly many Christian schools, just kind of, it would sound, I think, so foreign to think about love being ordered or defined in reality rather than just going, well, I, I feel it. Or, you know, as you talked about kind of life being turned inward, like everything is that expressive individualism idea, you know, from Taylor and Carl Truman builds on that. But so I think in many ways, if we don't get reality back in the table, it really sounds strange to people what we're talking about, right? Because they're like, well, what can't I just love how I want to love. I mean, isn't that the assumption? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that tells you that they're defining love on a feelings basis. You know, I speak sometimes with one of our partner organizations specifically on marriage and it's never how to have a happy marriage or a godly marriage. It's just, you know, is marriage a thing? Is marriage something that is created by God and put into the human experience? Is marriage more like a social construct that, you know, was maybe appropriate at one time, but is no longer appropriate. And when, when you start making a, a simple point like sex, marriage, and babies belong together as a package deal, and I'm not making that argument from Scripture at the time. I'm making that argument from social science, anthropology, observable biological realities, things like that. I, I never get stranger looks because they have been taught that sexual morality is boiled down to consent, which is a feeling that you have, that you, you ask for it and somebody else gives it. And they can't imagine, for example, when that goes out to something like parenting, they, they can't imagine that there's any other moral considerations or considerations of love other than I want it. If I want it, that's the sum total of it. And you were right to locate this in expressive individualism because one of the reasons why the love of God has to come first is that God is a fixed reference point outside of ourselves. And everything else in culture gives us no fixed reference point. It is all internally referential. I we often use the example of a compass. You know, it's like compass works because of the magnetic North Pole. And so the, the arrow will always eventually point north. So it doesn't tell you which way to go, but it always gives you a fixed reference point outside of yourself by which you can orient, make decisions, and so on. But imagine that you know you went hiking in the wilderness with a magnet in your backpack so that the arrow always pointed directly back at you. No matter where you turned, no matter which way you went, you would be the North Pole, so to speak. You would have no fixed way of, of knowing how to go forward. And all that would matter is that you were the center of reality. Now, what, I think what you're saying and what I'm trying to say here is, is literally every other voice in these students' lives, sometimes from their youth pastors, sometimes from Sunday school teachers, well-meaning, who end up arguing that, you know, the love of God is a, is, is a feeling and nothing more, and that, you know, um, Jesus has really good feelings about you, no matter 
what you do and what you are and all that. I mean, just kind of this language that gets essentially reinterpreted in light of what they've heard in every other situation and culture. I mean, think about it. An entire social revolution happened in the last couple of decades off of a slogan, love is love. Hmm. What a ridiculous slogan that is. I mean, if you have if you have any random two people in your life, you know that how you love one is not how you love the other. How you love your mom and how you love your wife better not be the same because that's weird. Um, You know, and how you love your pet and how you love, you know, chocolate cake and how you love. In other words, it was just such a randomly dumb slogan. Mm -hmm. And yet the reason that people believe love is love is because they believe love is an internally referential concept. If it's based on who people are outside of me, then it's observably and obviously not the same thing, how I love one, how I love the other. So it just kind of tells you where we're at. And yeah, you've got to fight for these definitions. You've got to fight for these same ways of knowing. You've got to confront kids with reality on the meaning of love, on the existence of objective reality, on the grounding of objective reality in the person and creative nature of God. I mean, it, you know, it sounds philosophical and technical, but honestly, it's, it's like the whole, the whole game can be lost on these things. Yeah, it's critical, and it's so important and so well said. And, you know, when we think about that, another thing you, you, you talk about— um, is when you empty love of that substance, that gravitas that we were just talking about, of neighbor especially, then you're left with these, you call them flimsy concepts of tolerance and inclusion. Just say a quick word about how those are playing out currently, especially among the next generation. Well, it's just when you lose that sort of stable grounding and the, and the rich, deep meaning of who we are and what it means to love and concepts like virtue and freedom. Then, then we get really sad, silly replacements. We talked about one just a second ago. We talk about something as, as life-giving and redemptive and freeing as the Christian vision of sexual virtue was to a pagan society in which women were treated as property and kids were treated as playthings. And you know, sex was just basically, if you want it, you take it, and as if nobody else matters. And then you have in that world, Christianity offers this vision that, oh, women are made in the image of God too. And so are children. And, and you know what? Sex belongs in the context of marriage. And, and I know the historical narrative, uh, you know, the, the, the cheap historical narrative actually is that, you know, the pagans were having all this sexual fun and the Christians came and brought in all their rules and ruined all the fun. And, but now we, we know better. Actually, there's been incredible historical work that has revealed that that vision of dehumanizing sexuality was so, so um, gosh, miserable, especially for women and children, that the Christian vision, giving women the power within the context of marriage to govern the sexuality was life-giving. I mean, it was freeing. It was beautiful. It was big. And so that's the history of it. And now the only thing that, that substitutes, since we've given up on, you know, that sex belongs, that, that language that sex belongs in marriage is seen as antiquated, even seen as oppressive and harmful, um, that sex belongs between a man and a woman and not two men, you know, because we actually have bodies and bodies have parts and parts have functions. And that stuff's seen as intolerant and bigoted. So all that's left, think about this, Jonathan, all that's left in our conversation about sex morality is consent. Mm. In other words, that's it. And so now you have college campuses that are like, you know, here's an app that you can use to secure consent. Why? So that you don't get sued, so you don't get kicked out, so you don't get accused of rape, you know, to protect women. 
I, I've seen this sort of language a number of times uh, on features having to do with the hookup culture and things like that, where women now have settled on good sex being sex where they weren't forced, where they weren't abused. Not, not that it's in the context of a strong relationship, not that it's in the context of being honored and, you know, not that it's in the context of procreation, certainly, but that it, it wasn't physically abusive. Therefore it's good. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's just when you reduce the sex act to pleasure, you reduce sexual morality to consent and you, and you compare it to what the real thing is. And you realize that's just flimsy and sad and it's dehumanizing and steals life from a society. Well, the same thing's true with tolerance, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the tolerance is, as, as Del Tackett said, is like this kind of unspoken arrangement. If you don't judge me, I won't judge you. You know, I mean, that's so pathetic when you compare it to like iron sharpens iron so that a brother sharpens his friend, you know, or, um, you know, uh, the, the, the grand tales of dignity and, and fighting for virtue and honor and some of the classical virtues of, of courage, you know, and temperance and, you know, the ability to conquer our own natures and, uh, you know, for the good of others. And then you compare that rich, beautiful understanding of virtue to power. And it's like, it's, it's so sad, you know? Um, and, and so that's what I mean when I say it's flimsy. It's just the real thing is so much better than the substitute that happens right now. For sure. And, and that, again, I think part of our opportunity is to reignite the imagination to show people what this could be, what it's supposed to be. And Hey, don't, don't you want that? I mean, doesn't that mm-hmm. sound good as opposed to what you're currently experiencing? And, and that's what, that's what, that's the opportunity. One of the opportunities we have, I love one of these lines that you mentioned here where you say, you know, working with the next generation at some point, a conversation will be, well, we need to be relevant in some form or fashion. And there's probably a sense in which that's true, but I love what you say here, but I want you to unpack it. Attempts to remain relevant to the shifting of culture actually leave us less relevant to reality. Unpack that. Well, culture is what humans do with reality. Reality doesn't change. We have a a remarkable ability to deny reality, either moral reality or to hide it. You know, for example, many young people live life greatly detached from nature, uh, you know, the wildlife or something like that. But it's there. You know, we've just been able to build these cultural settings in which, you know, we can stay air conditioned and stay safe from snakes. And and these things are good things, too. But ideologically, our culture can deceive us. It can make us think things are normal that aren't. It can make us think that things are real that aren't. It can make us, um, it, it can distract us from the things that actually matter. And I think in our pursuit of getting the next generation, we oftentimes want to be culturally relevant. But the distinction that we need to make is this, is our attempt to be relevant taking us away from reality. So for example, Neil Postman argues in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that entertainment is, is mainly distracting. There's a difference between art you know, you read a great story like Les Mis or you encounter a great, you know, play from William Shakespeare or something like that. And, and it makes you think more deeply about life in the world and relationships. That's very different than, you know, playing video games and basically being distracted all day long. In our attempts to get young people, we have to 
distinguish between the parts of the culture that are, are reflecting reality and getting in touch with who they really are and those parts of the culture that are distracting. You know, so, you know, basically what Neil Postman argued was that entertainment makes us silly. Well, if entertainment makes us silly, Christian entertainment might make us silly Christians. In other words, we, we have to do something different than just be entertaining and, and stamp it with Jesus. We, we need to reach people where they're really at. And I, and, I, and I think that this is the case here when it comes to love. If we don't carefully um, walk through what love is and what love is not, show the difference. And like you heard it said over here, this is love. But let me show you what love says, what love really is over here and make those distinctions you're going to be more relevant to real life because you're going to get to the heart of the matter as opposed to joining in with kind of the global, uh, um, the, the global effort to distract a generation by, you know, kind of noise and image and glowing rectangles. And that's the distinction I think we've got to make in how we minister is we want kids to be more fully and truly human. We want them to be more in touch with reality, not less. And there's a whole lot of cultural structures and habits that make them less connected with reality. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's so many other fun things we could talk about uh, from your chapter, Defining and Ordering Love, in, in our brand new book, Nobi Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era. Uh, I'm talking to John Stone Street today, president of the Colson Center, um, longtime friend of Impact 360. But what I'd love to kind of end with and encourage people to, to buy the book, um, you can get it on wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, whatever, wherever you buy your books to unpack more of this, but maybe share just a few nuggets. Cause at the end, you kind of talk about teaching lovers to love well. And I'm trying to think as, as, as moms, dads, parents, uh, church leaders, grandparents, what are some things that we can aim at to help Gen Z learn to love well? What are a couple of nuggets you might leave us with to kind of emphasize and impart and cast vision for? Yeah, I mean, I, part of it is certainly things we've, we've talked about, but I, I think one of the things we have to do is, is distinguish um, and make the distinctions between definitions. I mean, that's just, that's just the baseline. You know, we need to know what is it that we mean by love. We need to point out where things are counterfeit and things are real. I love the classic definition of discernment that was in a dictionary from the 19th century. You know, it's the ability to tell the difference between what is true and what is false and what is genuine and what is counterfeit. Think about that. How much in our world today is counterfeit? And then the second part of the definition of the discernment is, and it's also not just the ability to tell the difference, but the ability to choose the good and the genuine over the false and the counterfeit. And, and that brings up not only basically clarifying this distinction, in other words, in a culture that glosses over what love means and hollows it out to carefully define it and point out that when someone uses the word love doesn't mean it actually is. That's step one. And then step two is creating kind of alternative catechism, alternative formation. And I don't just mean answering questions. I mean, what habits we get into. Augustine talks about the cultivation of good habits. You know, oftentimes challenge students this way, you know, get into some of these topics that you and I talk about. They're like, well, that's over my head. And I'm like, yeah, that means you're too short. You know, in other words, the problem's not the topic. The problem is you. And we're going to expect great things of you. I wonder how much of this is really touched on just 
bigger expectations. I've been captivated recently by a concept from Thomas Sowell, which is, you know, the soft tyranny of low expectations. You, you, you set the bar low, kids rise to that level. You set a little bit higher, they rise to that level. And I think we need to respect the image, the imageness in them and have those higher expectations, uh, give them alternative habits, uh, help them love better things by exposing them to better things and encouraging them, limiting their access to wrong things. I mean, you know, I know this sounds pretty basic, but it's not just to let them behave. It's that, that they cultivate the love of things that are good and true. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the thing that we have to do is call them to more, invite them to more, but also tell them like you, you were made for more. Like this is not just power, positive thinking, pop psychology kind of stuff. This is, no, you are made in God's image. <laughs> you can, you are capable of thinking at a level higher than you currently at or loving others or relating at a higher level than you currently at. And that's, I love, I love that. I love that, that challenge. I love that. I, I think, I mean, that's been our experience, whether here at Impact 360, working with Immersion or Fellows or Propel or just interacting with students in general, call them to something more than their everyday experience. And in my experience, and I know you experience this, is they tend to rise to the occasion once they're invited to consider that. Yeah, they, they, they do. And it, this is not coddling. This is the exact opposite. And, and that's such an important distinction. It's not just kind of power of positive thinking, as you said. This is actually realizing the potential and what's at stake and recognizing the value that they have and what's at stake in their own life. You know, I mean, look, if I had a, a, a kid with, you know, a, the potential to be a, a, a leader and, you know, I basically raise them, you know, to be unemployable, that's, that's low expectations. That's not loving them at all. And so, yeah, we, I mean, look, we, we, we have to have better expectations and, and to see it as an act of love. Absolutely. Well, um, the conversation has been so rich today, talking to my good friend John Stone Street, talking about defining and ordering love, how that's a foundational part of our discipleship of the next generation. Not only that we define it, but that we cast vision for it, invite them into it, that we rightly order love. So if you are a parent, a mom or a dad, grandparent, listen to this, you know, Maybe think about what's one way in your sphere of influence this week where you could help someone define love better than maybe they came into that situation. Not in an overly preachy way or anything like that, but what's a way that you can maybe bring some clarity that might invite them into a bigger reality, bigger story of God's reality, which I think is important. And also, I want to encourage you for listening, and you want somebody to come alongside you in the process here at Impact 360, we want to be an ally to you, not only through resources and books like this, this No Be Live book edited by John Basie, but also our on-campus experiences here in Pine Mountain, Georgia, our summer experiences, Propel and Immersion, our nine-month gap year fellows. We want to call students to more and equip them to follow Jesus and make disciples in this culture. And so if we can help, check that out at impact360.org. But John, I just want to thank you so much for all that you're doing. Um, and if people want to find out more about all the good work you're doing, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, thanks for asking. Breakpoint.org is the, is the best place to start. And uh, you can get some daily commentaries. We've got periodic courses that we do, conferences, events, and uh, also our Colson Fellows program. Uh, and you can start at breakpoint.org. 
That's awesome. And so looking forward to have you in here in the spring uh, with our students. That'll be super fun. And uh, yeah, so just thanks for stopping by today. Thanks for contributing this chapter. It's so important and really blessings on your ministry. So thanks for stopping by today. Thanks so much. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.